Well, four score and seven years ago. Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we're engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We're met on a great battlefield of that war. We've come to dedicate a portion of this field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. And it's altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. Now, how many of you know what speech that comes from in American history? The vast majority of you do. I won't ask those who do not. The vast majority of you know this speech, don't you? You know that's the opening salvo of President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. What you may not know or may not think much about is that that address was given 160 years ago, November 19th of 1863. Lincoln delivered that address there at the National Graveyard there in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Now, how many of you know the gentleman, the name of the gentleman who spoke for two hours and eight minutes at that convocation that day? How many know that guy's name? Some of you. Great students of history, very good. Gentlemen, by the name of the Honorable Edward Everett gave an oration of two hours and eight minutes before Lincoln spoke, and it was very well received. He was a professional speaker. He spoke about the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg that had just taken place a few months prior. He spoke about the War of the Roses and other civil wars that had had taking place in other nations, and how those civil wars had never really bound the nation back together again. And so he spoke of his hope that the United States would become united once again, and that they would beat the odds, and that this civil war would not separate the nation, but would draw the nation together. Two hours and eight minutes he talked about that, as people stood in a cold November day and listened to him, and the vast majority of them appreciating what he had to say. When he was done, Lincoln got up to speak and he delivered the Gettysburg Address in 271 words. 271 words Lincoln spoke in the Gettysburg Address. Part of those words he said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but he was wrong about that. He was wrong about that because the Gettysburg Address is arguably the greatest speech ever given on American soil. And it's not just in America. There are other nations that recognize the, the beauty of his prose and the way he put those words together. Friends, again, almost anybody can get up in front of people and say 271 words. Lincoln was probably anticipating Twitter, I suspect, and just thinking, how am I going to condense all this down, right? It's not just 271 words. It's 271 words put together the right way, right? Saying the right things. You can go to other nations and know that, that many of those nations, most of them English-speaking nations, recognize the, the grandeur of the Gettysburg Address. Go to Parliament Square in Great Britain and see the statue of Abraham Lincoln there and see the words of the Gettysburg Address there engraved near his statue. These words mattered, right? They were important words. They, they, they had significance 
And the reason why I bring up that historical event for you today is to simply say that. Words matter. Words matter. And the way that words are put together matter. And words convey meaning to us. And we're able to grow and understand and, and, and engage in things better because words matter. And words put together well matter to us and become more memorable to us because of the way that they have been put together. I think one of the most tragic realities of our time is the way that we have corrupted this truth. We've corrupted the truth that words matter. And the way we've corrupted them primarily is through propaganda. And what is propaganda? Propaganda is simply the, the understanding that words matter. And then taking those words that matter and changing them in an untruthful way so that people, sometimes entire nations, are led astray. And the reason why propaganda works is because words matter. And because they convey meaning to us. And they elicit feelings. And they elicit responses from us. And so words matter in this world that God has given to us. And today we're going to hear from Jesus himself that the word he has spoken has great meaning. And the way he's put them together, they have great meaning. In fact, they have an eternal meaning to them. They stand for, for all time. And what Jesus will say to us today is that the words that he has spoken... They're not only meaningful and have impact on us, but that they will actually judge the hearts of men and women one day. The day will come, friends, when we will stand before Jesus Christ and his words will judge us. And they will have great meaning. And they will have lasted and will last throughout all eternity, right? Your word, O oh Lord, is transfixed in the heavens. They are eternal. That is the purpose and the meaning of God's word. And the words of Jesus will one day render a verdict in our lives, each one of our lives. The words of Jesus will render a verdict and eternal destinies will hang in the balance, friends. Eternal destinies will hang in the balance. And so Jesus shares that with us today in John's gospel. We're going to wrap up John chapter 12 today. Next week, we'll move into the Passion Week of Christ. It's already kind of begun now with the, with the entry of Christ into Jerusalem. But we'll begin in earnest next week with the last evening of Jesus or the last full day of Jesus' life. But we're going to wrap up John chapter 12. We're going to do that in verses 44 through 50 today. And we're going to see that words matter and that words have great meaning. John's Gospel in the New Testament, if you're new to your Bibles, the fourth of four great Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And we're in John chapter 12. We're going to start at verse 44 today. So let's stand together, shall we? Let's honor God as we read from his word today. John chapter 12. Jesus says this. John tells us this in chapter, in verse 44. Jesus cried out and he said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. And so here, Jesus makes a final appeal. We spoke a little bit about this last week. A final appeal of Jesus Christ. But John is the one who's molding this narrative, isn't he? John's the one telling the story. They're the words of Jesus, but John is the one putting them in order for us. And John and Jesus have something for us to say or to hear as we move into a change in the narrative. A change in the narrative. Because here, at least in John's gospel, are Jesus' last words of public teaching. Now Jesus will teach his disciples. Now Jesus will stand before Pilate. Jesus will have a few things to say to the Jewish Sanhedrin. He'll have a few smattering of things to say to others. But almost exclusively, Jesus now will concentrate his teaching upon his disciples. These are the last public words in John's gospel that Jesus will say to the crowds at large. And so verse 44 tells us, Jesus cried out and said, right? Jesus cried out and said, but not on this occasion, friends. This isn't when he cried out and said these things. How do we know that? Because John's already told us that Jesus has separated himself from the crowd. Remember, if you were here last week, as a sign of judgment to the people, particularly, I think, to the Jewish nation at this time, Jesus has removed himself and hidden himself from the crowd. So John is taking words of Jesus, real words of Jesus that Jesus spoke, and he's putting them here in John's gospel. Why? Because John is telling a story. That's why. John is writing a gospel. John is sharing a narrative. Jesus has separated himself from the crowd, and now John wants those reading and hearing his gospel to hear Jesus' final appeal, to hear this appeal to people that they would come to the light, that they would see Jesus at the light, that they would know that God has given a commandment to Jesus and that Jesus has been faithful to fulfill the commandment. And that commandment is a living word from Christ to the nations. And that word is eternal life. It's interesting how John says that, isn't it? He doesn't say, and that word leads to eternal life. I think that's what he means. But what does he say? That word is eternal life. This is a commandment. The commandment is eternal life. There's life in the words, friends. They're living words. There's life in those words of Jesus. And they, like the words of God the Father, are transfixed in the heavens, friends. They're not going away. Jesus has spoken them and they will last throughout all eternity. And so here is Jesus' final plea, plea in John's gospel to see him for who he is. Friends, Jesus wants people to know Jesus. John wants people to know Jesus. He wants them to hear Jesus. He wants them to respond to Jesus. This is the entire purpose of this gospel. It's not just history, friends. There's a purpose for this gospel it's so that by reading and hearing these words that John has put together of Jesus and seeing the seven signs and seeing the great I am statements of Jesus, that we might come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And by believing in him, we might have eternal life in his name. That's the purpose of the gospel. 
And John is weaving the story together so that we'll hear the words of Jesus Christ. He's saying nothing that Jesus hasn't said. He's taking the words of Jesus and saying, here's where they fit best. Here's where I want this final plea to go out to these people before we begin to share a narrative of the last day of Jesus' life and what that would lead to. We know Jesus is calling us because the Gospels are filled with Jesus calling, aren't they? Look what Jesus says here, recorded by the Gospel writer Matthew in Matthew 11. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the, the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Let's stop right there for just a second. Anyone to whom the Father or the Son has chosen to reveal the Father. Friends, let me just make sure that this is very, very clear to us all today. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, Jesus has chosen you. He's chosen to reveal the Father to you. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible grace from God that Jesus has chosen you 2,000 years out from his life and chosen you and everyone else who has ever come to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know, all of a sudden, right, we're in the deep end of the pool, and everybody wants to say, what about everybody else, right? Are you going to start talking now about predestination, pastor, and go into all of that? Nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the words of Jesus stand as the words of Jesus. And I'm going to say, friends, why don't we try this? Why don't we let God figure out all the things that we don't know about? Why don't we let God decide who receives Christ and who doesn't receive Christ? Why don't we let the God of the universe who knows all things, searches every heart and every mind, who never sends anyone to hell who should have been in heaven and never went to heaven who should have been in hell, who makes no mistakes ever and never will, why don't we let him figure out the things that we don't understand? And then let's just take the words of Jesus and know that if you know Christ today, Jesus chose to reveal the Father to you. That's why you know him. That is an incredible grace of God, friends. It's an incredible mercy from God. Now, let's go back to Matthew 11 here. If we can, there we go. Let's pick up. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Look what Jesus does here, friends, right out of the gate after saying that, right? This statement that everybody says, narrows, 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 narrows. Look what Jesus does immediately in the next sentence. Come to me who? Everyone, right? A universal call, a universal call. Are you burdened? Are you heavy laden? Come to Jesus, he says. Come to me, everyone who is labor or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me this heavy, this heavy uh, yoke that was placed on oxen as a, as a metaphor, as a, as a symbol here. Jesus says, take that and give it to me. Yours is heavy. Mine is light, and I'll exchange it for you, and it's not a fair exchange, right? Jesus is taking the heavy yoke. He's giving you the light yoke, and he says, take that. Take this yoke from me. And then you can learn from me, he says, because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. 
And you will find rest for your souls because this yoke of mine is easy. This burden of mine is much lighter than the burden that you're carrying today, friends. Much lighter than the yoke that you have been carrying around and I've been carrying around the better part of our lives. Jesus says, come. That's the call of Christ. Come. It's a universal call. The call goes out to the nations, right? We've seen that in this narrative. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. And the Jewish leaders, these religious leaders representing all the people of Israel, not everyone individually, right? Because there are some Jews who do come to know Christ right in that audience. But representing the people as a whole, they've already passed judgment on Jesus, right? He is not the Messiah. But in that crowd is a smattering of Greeks and Gentiles, and they've come to see Jesus. They've come to hear Jesus. They want to know Jesus. In that crowd is a smattering of Jews who have given their lives to Christ. They're cowards. They don't want to tell anybody about it, but they've given their lives to Christ. They've come to recognize Jesus. Why have they done that? Because Jesus has given a call to people to come to him. And John is recording this and saying, here's the last plea of Christ in this gospel. He's the light of the world. Come, know him as the light of the world. Commit yourself to him. Believe in him. Hear these words, these living and eternal words. Hear the commandment of God that Jesus, in obedience to the Father, spoke these words that in and of themselves are eternal life. Jesus goes on to say, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in the one who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me, right? Whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me into this world. So friends, in Jesus, humankind meets God, and God meets humankind. In and through the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. Friends, Do do you wonder sometimes why it is that it's only through Christ that salvation comes? That this religion, this Christianity that Christ brought into the world, that it's so narrow that only people who hear and respond to Jesus Christ are saved? You wonder about that sometimes? I'm willing to bet you do, because I do sometimes. Here's at least part of the answer to that question. It's because nobody who's ever lived on this planet ever, ever could say what Jesus said right there. No one who's ever lived on this planet has words that are words of eternal life unless they're sharing what Jesus shared. No one can say, if you've seen me, you've sent the one who sent me. To know God is to know me and to hear God is to hear me. Nobody can say that. They may say it as a a voice of propaganda, but they cannot say it as a voice of truth. Only Jesus can say this. And therefore, salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, friends. He's the only one who reveals God. Muhammad didn't do it. Muhammad did not reveal God to us. Joseph Smith cannot do it. And the millions of Mormons who follow his teaching are not following the teaching of Jesus Christ. And we can go on the list of self-proclaimed saviors of this world who died and are dead and can do nothing for you now, friends. They can do nothing for their adherents. They can do nothing for their followers The great cult leaders who have come through our nation and many other nations who have proclaimed that they are Jesus Christ incarnate and that they will save people after death are dead themselves, most of them. 
many of them, and can do nothing for their followers, not one thing. It's only Christ who can do this. It's only in Christ that we might know salvation. These are the words of Jesus himself. He reveals the Father. He's the one who helps us to know who God is, to see who God is. And therefore, he's the only one that can offer us hope and salvation. And so to place your faith in Jesus, friends, is to place your faith in God the Father. They are tied together inextricably, friends. They are inextricably tied together. Why? Because Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, are inextricably tied together. They are one in nature and one in essence. To see Jesus is to see God, and to hear Jesus is to hear God. But God is invisible, isn't he? We can't see God, but they could see Jesus. And one day we will too, friends. We will see Jesus in all his glory, in all his splendor. Corporal, in a body, in a flesh that we'll be able to touch. This is the Jesus that is proclaiming these words and saying, that which is invisible, you see in me. What what word you cannot hear from God the Father who is spirit, you are hearing from me. To see me is to see the Father. Inextricably tied together, friends. Look, books have been written on this. Shelves are filled with the mystery of the incarnation, right? Jesus the Son, one in nature and essence with the Father. No differentiation here. Co-eternal. Co-glorious, right? And yet here he is as the incarnate Son of God, wrapped in flesh, speaking the words of God, speaking the commandments of God, submitting himself in the incarnation to God the Father, doing only what the Father tells him to do, saying only what the Father says for him to say, giving the commandment that the Father has commanded him to give. And that commandment, he says, is eternal life. Here's the words of life, he says. God the Father commanded me to give them to you. I am giving them to you. In submission to the Father, the Son proclaims the words of the Father to us. In submission to the Father, in the incarnation, he comes and wraps himself in flesh and makes himself obedient to death. Even death on the cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. Here's the obedience and the humility of the Son. Here is the Son of God who is God saying, listen to these words of life. Here is John the Gospel writer saying, here is a final appeal to you. The rest is a narrative about what Christ has done to save you. Here is his final appeal to you. Come to the light because he's the light, friends. And escape the darkness. Come to Jesus and know life is what Jesus is saying to you and to me in a universal call to all who will respond and hear his word. So friends, you cannot reject the words of Jesus with impunity. You cannot reject the words of Jesus with impunity because they're the words of God. They are the words of God himself. But they are a working word, friends. They are a working word. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him or her. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, right? Here's the mission, or at least part of the mission of Jesus in the incarnation. What? To come and save the world. To judge the world? No, that comes later. 
but to save the world. Here is the mission of the Son to the world. The primary task of Jesus in the first advent, in the incarnation, save the world. Save the world. Proclaim an eternal word so that the nations might hear and those within those nations might respond and come to know Jesus Christ. Recorded for us in John's gospel as well. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Quite frankly, we're not sure if these are the words of Jesus specifically or John telling us what Jesus is saying because there's no quotations in the original Greek language. So we don't quite know where the quotations end in John chapter 3. John is sharing us the words of Jesus. Jesus has spoken these words that he didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world to save the world. His primary task, friends, in the second advent, right, Jesus is coming back, right? Amen? Amen? Jesus is coming back. And the primary task in the second advent will be to sum up all things. As the great church father Irenaeus said, to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race. For what purpose? To judge the world, friends, to judge the nations, to separate the sheep from the goats. That is the primary task of Jesus' second advent. He comes first to proclaim an eternal word and to see men and women come to salvation. He comes back to sum up all things, friends. Your friends and your family who have died and who know Jesus... They're experiencing glorious things right now while we're stuck right here. Experiencing glorious things, friends. Things that no eye has seen and no ear has heard. Things that the Apostle Paul was transported into the third heaven and heard but could not tell us about. Apparently a lot of other people have done that and they write books about it. Paul couldn't. Things that cannot be spoken. Things that shall not be said in the earth. Your friends, your family who know Jesus are experiencing those things right now. And here's the glorious things. It's not everything yet. That comes later. There's more to come for them. There's more to come for you and for me. So much more to come. Jesus comes back in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end, friends. The first advent is to save. The second advent is to judge. Those are his primary tasks that he has told us. And always, always, always in John's gospel, friends, we find an essential paradox. And that paradox is this. A mission to save brings with it on its heels judgment. Why? Because many people will hear and respond and believe and be saved, and many will not. And therefore, judgment hangs in the balance for them and waits for them, right? It waits for them. Friends, this is an eternal word that Jesus has given to us and spoken to us. This is an eternal word that we have at our disposal. 
a word that we are to heed and listen to, a word that John is keen for us to heed and listen to. Therefore, he has written his gospel in such a way that we have this great climactic moment in chapter 12, what we call chapter 12, before he changes the narrative to the Passion Week of Jesus, and he says, here's a final appeal of Jesus. Hear what Jesus has to say. He's calling you to the light, friends. He's calling you to come out of the darkness. On that day, friends, Jesus will not need to stand on some great raised platform and say anything to us. He's already said everything he has to say to us. Everything that we need for salvation, he has already said to us. He's already spoken that commandment, that eternal word to us. It's a working word. And therefore, Jesus says, on that day, I don't need to judge anybody. The word I've spoken will cast a verdict. Friends, watch your response to the word of Christ, the eternal word of Christ. It will cast a verdict on you one day. Jesus has said this as plain as it can be said. The judgment of Christ is not judge up, not Jesus on some raised diadem or platform, bringing people before him one at a time and then walking through everything. That's a judgment that happens for believers to determine what type of reward we receive in glory. The separation of the sheep and the goats, the word has already been spoken by Christ. It's an eternal word that will judge the nations. Again, Jesus himself told us this, John chapter 3, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, friends. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's why we like dark. That's why we keep getting tugged back into it, those of us who have come to know Christ. This eternal word is a commandment that leads to eternal life. And it brings with it, friends, for those of us who have come to know Christ genuinely, it brings with it justification and regeneration as a work of God in our lives. And it brings sanctification, making us more like Christ. But we still battle the flesh. We still battle a sin nature, don't we? And we keep getting tugged back towards the darkness. Why? We know why. We like it. We like that darkness. But Jesus has given us an eternal word to combat that, friends. Here's the problem. So many people who claim to know Jesus do not know that word. Why? Because they're illiterate. Some, possibly. Most, no. Because it's not in their heart language, at least in the United States, the answer would be for over 95% of people, no, that's not it. It's because they don't take the time to know it and to read it. And they find themselves being drugged back into the darkness and they wonder why. Because they do not know eternal words. They do not know words that are living and active. They do not know how to combat the darkness in their lives with the words of Christ given to us 2,000 years ago that continue to resonate and continue to, to bring forth regeneration and sanctification in our lives. It happened to the people of Israel Entire generations after generations after generations hearing the word of God, rejecting the word of God. What does Jesus have to say to them primarily, collectively to the people of Israel? He says to them, this is your house that you're so proud of, the people of Israel, the house of God. You're so proud and so happy of this. Jesus says, I give to you your house. I give it back to you and I leave it to you 
You remember what he says? I leave it to you desolate. It's nothing but desolation. There's nothing there for you. You've rejected everything. You've rejected God. And so you can have your house back, but it's a desolate house. It's an empty house. There's nothing there for you. Friends, what Christian wants that house? Who wants to live in desolation? Who wants to stand before Jesus one day and have him say, here's what you have? Nothing. Emptiness. And we say, but will they be saved? How do I know? (laughs) That's for God to know. That's not for me to know or for you to know. But we do know what Jesus has said to us in his eternal word because those words matter and those words resonate truth continually today as they did in Jesus' day. Why? The Bible's already told us why. Because God's word never comes back to him void, friends. It never comes back to him empty. It always does one of two things. It always draws people to him or repels people from him. But it's always doing its work, friends. The word of God is living. It's always doing its work. It never comes back as if, well, that was a waste of time. It always accomplishes what God wants it to accomplish, friends. There was an old pastor in the 18th century who wrote a catechism of the faith for his parish, for ordinary people in this parish. A catechism, if you're not familiar with that, is kind of a question and answer, a Q&A, right? Here's the question, what's the answer? Here's the biblical question, what's the, what's the answer? At the end of it, he asked this question, what happens to a person who disregards the words of Christ? Answer, he or she will come under the condemnation of God. And then he adds this as a parenthetical statement, and so much more because thou hast read his book. And so much more because thou hast read his book. Friends, there is a responsibility given to us who have heard the word of Christ, a living word, a commandment from God to Christ, to us. There's an expectation for those of us who have heard it. Now the question is, is how have you received the word of Christ? How have you responded to the eternal word of Christ? And, friends, so much more now that thou has heard his word, that thou has read his book, how much more responsible are we? What happens to those who never hear God's word? What happens to those who never hear God's word? Well, I have my theological answer for that, and I think it's right, quite frankly. If I thought it was wrong, I'd change it to what I thought was right. But let me just use the words of Jesus, maybe, in this one. When another man came to Jesus and said, what about this guy, right? His name is Peter. Jesus told Peter what to expect in the future, and Peter said about John, what about John? Remember what Jesus said to Peter? What is that to you? What is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. So friends, let me ask you this question. What happens to those people who do hear the word of God? And that's everyone in this room now. What happens to those who do hear the word of God and reject it? Let's let God worry about the things that are mysterious and we can't know about. Let's respond to the things we can know about. 
And Jesus has told us what happens to those who reject his word. They stand under condemnation. This is his plea to you, friends. Don't stand under condemnation. Come to the light. Come. Know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He has given us an eternal word, a commandment from God the Father. He's spoken in obedience to the Father. In humility, he has come and wrapped himself in flesh to bring us this word and to bring us hope and to bring us salvation, friends. The word of God is living and active, isn't it? It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Everything is open and laid bare before the eyes of him, friends, to whom we must give an account one day. Everything is open and laid bare before his eyes. His word penetrates into lives, into spiritual lives, into physical lives. It's a living word, friends. It matters. It conveys a message to us, and it's an eternal message that we must heed and respond to. Jesus came not speaking his own words on his own authority, friends, but the words that the Father gave him. And that word is a word that absolutely matters in this world, and it always will, friends. It will never go away. It's an eternal word. And so here then is the call of Jesus, my friends. I have not come, he says, to judge the world, but to save the world. Now, come to the light and do not remain in the darkness any longer. That is his plea to you and to me. He came with a mandate, friends, and he gave us that mandate. Preach a word of eternal life. Now you'll have to decide what you're going to do with that eternal word. How will you respond to his word, friends? Here's my plea for you today. Receive the words of Jesus Christ. They will lead you to eternal life. Amen? And so, Father, let that word sink in. Not the word that I've shared, God. Only that which is in accordance with what you have shared and that I have been accurate with. And that John, Lord, has shared with us under the, 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 the gifting and the power of the Holy Spirit a word that is true, a word that we can bank on, the very words of Jesus Christ, which are the very words, God, that you have given to us. It is your revelation to us. So God, help us as men and women and young people here today to respond to that eternal word and to receive Jesus Christ, and to believe on Jesus Christ, and to fight, 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 Lord God, with the power that you give us by your Spirit to remain in the light. I pray that you would do that for us in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.